0: Welcome to the Tokyo Lens Podcast, and as always, if you are a regular listener, welcome back. It is good to be back on the podcast circuit. It has been at least a week since the last episode, and regular viewers of the YouTube channel will know that this has a lot to do with the unnamed adventure. Now, if you don't know what I am talking about whatsoever, in a previous episode, episode of the podcast, I had a guest on, a gentleman named Victor. Victor and I rented a car and just boxed off a whole bunch of spots on our bucket list over a period of like around four days. Now, this was a very, very worthwhile journey. We were able to visit Japan's deepest station, Doai Station, which also I did a podcast episode on, as well as a place called Fureai Sekibutsu no Sato. And this is kind of a little field, or they call it a village, Sato, where you can see Japanese people's likeness made in stone. Uh, A total of over 800 statues, all commissioned and have built by this wealthy gentleman from the area who re- owned a bunch of hospitals and restaurants and stuff like that and the episode that i just recently put up was simply a shrine but it was it was a shrine that a definitely took a lot of effort to find and be took just as much effort to get to. Now, inside of this, people asked, well, you know, how how do you find these locations? And I thought, well, you know, that might be a really good podcast episode. You know, how how do I find all of these hidden locations? But really, in the end, it just comes down to searching and allowing yourself to get lost. Probably about... of the locations I find are through simply searching, researching, and the other 50% are just through getting lost. If I come up with a more detailed or interesting answer, I'll see if I can't put it into a podcast episode for you. But for today, what I wanted to cover is the one essential point to making all of this possible, and that was the car. The, the the single four-wheeled vehicle that took us around and kind of what it's like to drive in Japan. Now, some of you listening to this podcast may have driven in Japan before. In fact, if you live in Japan, you may drive in Japan all the time. So what I would like to kind of share today is kind of my experience because I think it doesn't matter what country you're in. Dri- yes, that's right. I, I just jumbled all those words together. Let's try that again. It doesn't matter what country you are in. Driving is a very different experience from person to person. Now, keep in mind that a lot of what you're going to hear from me today is most likely going to have a positive spin on it because I personally love driving i always have so when i think about driving in different you know different countries different places it's always been something that i enjoy but getting into driving in japan and rather than having this be a really logical a to z here are the points of driving in japan episode, what I'm going to try and do is kind of make it more anecdotal, share my experiences, my thoughts, all the little stuff from what it was like to get a license in Japan to what it's like to rent a car to driving in the city versus countryside, etc, etc. So the very first time that I drove in Japan was actually after my first time living here. When I came out here in like 2005 and 2007, I didn't a license with me. It wasn't until, I think, 2009 that I brought an, an, excuse me, not a license, international driver's permit. And getting the international driver's permit was pretty easy. And getting into Japan, my single biggest concern, if you're from, for example, North America, is, well, I'm going to be driving on the opposite side of the road. And that that was actually really, really terrifying for me at first. But that terror went away in roughly, I'd say, 15 to 20 seconds. You you very quickly adjust to the fact that whether you're on the right side or the left side, the driver is on the inside lane. And so it doesn't really feel all that different. But the first thing out of the gate that I noticed in Japan that was very, very different for me from driving in Canada was how kind other drivers were to let me in, especially in the big city in Tokyo. I have seen people complain on Twitter and stuff like that about Japanese drivers, this, that, the next thing, but I also kind of feel like if you're complaining about drivers on Twitter, more than likely you're going to be complaining about drivers no matter where you go. So for me, at least, I expected Tokyo by car to be very very similar to tokyo by foot now for those of you who have been to tokyo you'll know that tokyo by foot can be a crowded and aggressive metropolis just like any other big city in the world but tokyo by car for the most part was actually a very pleasant experience Right within the first day, I was stuck at a T-section. I was like, there's absolutely no way I am going to be able to get in. Cars are lined up way back down the road. I'm going to be sitting here for some time. And literally before I could even finish the thought, somebody stopped and waved me right in. And I was like, wow, this is, that, that was a really nice person. I got incredibly lucky or so I thought until... The same thing happened again, and again, and again. Now, I can't really say that this is all in all Japan driving culture, as every time I get out of Tokyo, I notice a definite decrease in this. Now, I've heard so many people say that driving in Tokyo is a terrible experience, and drivers don't let you in, but that has not been my experience. Keeping in mind that depending on where you drive, I guess, everybody's experience could most definitely vary, but I've found the more challenging part of driving in Tokyo more than anything has just been safely getting around buses or keeping an eye on taxis around me. Taxis in Japan are famously, famously dangerous and aggressive drivers. If you pay attention to the street lights in Japan, I guarantee you in any given day, you will see two or more taxi drivers just blow through red lights. It's like if the light's only been red for three to five seconds, they're totally okay to go through it. It's kind of the mindset they seem to have. So in the moment right before the other light turns green, there's still a taxi just blowing right through the intersection. And I've seen, and I, I do have to put a little bit of a PSA in here because I have seen people get hit by taxis more than any other accident that I have seen in Japan. I've seen bicycles get taken out by taxis. I've seen elderly. I've seen children get hit by taxis. And it's a terrible, terrible thing to see. And more more often than not, it's just a taxi who's completely ignored one of the rules of the road. For example, a stop sign printed on the road and the taxis decided that the line that is right there for the stop sign just doesn't really apply to them. So they're going to pull up a couple meters past the line and the bicycle coming through or the young guy running down the street on his way to school doesn't see this and boom, hit by a taxi. And so... Getting driving safely with the awareness of these taxis around you is is one of the bigger challenges of Tokyo. And again, most definitely not unique to Tokyo or Japan. But the other big one is because there are not that many lanes, more often than not a single lane or two lanes on a road. And there are a lot of city buses getting around city buses, can be a bit of a challenge. That and the fact that Tokyo, more often than not, will throw like a five or six point intersection at you. And if it is your first time ever to pull up to like a multi-point intersection, like, you know, five directions, six directions or more, you get up there and you're like, oh my Lord, where do I turn? Do I pull in? Do I pull into the intersection? Do I stay back? The very first time that you approach a lot of these situations, they'll feel new and terrifying. But the more you do it, the more you get used to it. And again, that's a very, very obvious statement. But there's one thing that will really, really help. And that is the Japanese navi systems, the GPS that are built into the car. You see, when I drive, I typically, I I like to use Google Maps, but I don't always entirely trust it. In fact, when I used to drive very often in Japan, I had actually purchased a Garmin GPS from overseas that had Japan maps in it just because I wanted a device that I was comfortable with. And back in Canada, I had always used a Garmin. That was by no means a good idea. You see, while it did have the maps inside of it, they weren't exactly the most accurate, and one of the maps led me up onto a super narrow mountain path that most definitely was not a path towards my destination, ended in a dead end that apparently on the map wasn't supposed to be there, and I got stuck for a while. So, I definitely recommend the Japanese Navi, but not just because of the maps and whatnot that's in them. It's because of the extra features that come along. You see, each intersection or each exit ramp or each confusing junction or whatever actually has an image of it saved into the GPS. Now, this may not be the case for all, but for all the ones that I have used so far, if you're coming up And the highway splits off in three different directions. Your navigation system will tell you you need to be in the middle two lanes or the leftmost two lanes. And it'll show you right on a map. Or when you're coming up to one of those confusing intersections in Tokyo, it'll show you, you know, you need to pull up to this space and turn this way through here. And it's got an image of it right there built into the GPS. So more often than not, when I travel, I will use the Japanese navigation system along with Google Maps. That way I have kind of a little bit of a redundancy there, a little bit of a a backup, but it's always made it pretty easy for me to get around. But I guess this kind of brings us into the topic of licenses and everything like that. I did touch on the fact that you know you can get an international driver's permit, um, again, most likely dependent on country. If you are Canadian like myself, it's it's pretty simple. You just go up to CAA, you grab your international driver's permit and you're off. But when you get into Japan, each country is going to have a different set of rules for whether or not they can convert their license into a Japanese license. As a Canadian driver, this was a very easy process. And by easy, I do mean incredibly mundane and boring. I had to go out to this driver's centre and spend the better part of almost an entire day there. Just sitting, listening to this presentation, I don't think I had to take. Maybe I did have to take a written test. It's so long ago and I can't remember, but my licence is coming up for renewal in just a couple weeks. So maybe the renewal process is something I'll be able to share with you guys here or over on YouTube, if not both. A couple friends of mine have done amazing pieces of content for those of you who are interested in knowing more about this. For example, like Michaela, she did an entire video on getting your license in Japan, and it is a process. If you do know, okay, so allow me to tell you it from the, sorry, I just knocked the mic stand. Allow me to tell you it from the anecdotal standpoint of how it was explained to me the very first time I heard it. This is not 100% accurate, but it does paint a picture. And if you'd like to know a little bit more, I highly recommend Michaela's video series or video. I can't remember if it was one or more. I felt like it was more. Maybe it was just one long one. Anyway, I am doing what I do and rambling. So I had a Japanese friend say that I'm going to get my license this summer. And I was like, okay, well, how, you know, what, what, what does that entail? They're like, well, you know, you can spread it out over a couple months or you can live at the licensing center for like two weeks and box it all off there. And I was like, live at the licensing center. And they're like, yeah, there's, there's a little dormitory. And you basically, you're kind of, it's not really a campus, but you can say you would live on campus and you sleep there at night. You have your meals there for the most part. And during the day, you do all these driver's classes. You take, you know, sit and like talk classes, like lectures. You do handwritten tests. You do driving practice. There's driving tests. And at the end of that two weeks, you walk away with, your license. I was like, wow, so you can get your license in two weeks in Japan? They're like, yeah, definitely. They're like, the only thing is the cost. And I was like, well, what, what's it cost? And they're like somewhere north of $2,000. And that's where I stopped right there. I don't know what country you're listening from. It might be Canada, it might be the US, you might be listening from Belgium or the Netherlands or Australia, but the i in in canada at least the licensing system and the tests do not cost anywhere near that much now we have a very different system which i'm not going to get into but it's 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 simple it's it's cheap it's borderline maybe ineffective i don't know but to hear that japanese drivers go through that much was actually quite incredible and so Again, if that's something you're interested in, there is more content out there about it. I recommend checking it out. But getting your driver's license in Japan is by no means a cheap process. Oh, sorry, guys. Got distracted there for a second with a little bit of a delivery. But one of the other things that I really wanted to get into with this is kind of the cost of driving in Japan. So let's imagine straight out that you want to purchase and own a car. First off, you're going to be very, very surprised by how cheap you can get, especially used cars in Japan. You see, in Japan, used cars have next to no value. And so even if it's only been used for a couple months, a year, two years, the price drops dramatically. Now, with a lot of English information making its way online if you're not careful you could end up paying a lot more than you really need to for example another good friend of mine Greg who runs a channel called Life Where I'm From highlighted in a video of his that car rentals for example you will pay a premium for some of them if you go to the English site rather than using the Japanese site you'll pay anywhere from to 50% or even higher just to rent the car from their English site. Pick up from the same shop and everything like that, but kind of the same when it comes to purchasing cars it pretty much goes without saying that taking a look around shopping around all of these things are important it doesn't matter what product you're buying in what country whatever but it especially comes true when you're purchasing cars in Japan for example I got a car a Sylvia S14 it was modified it probably at the strength and speed that it was at would have cost me use anywhere from 10 to 20 grand, depending on the condition back in Canada. But I was able to pick it up for about 2,500 American. That's about 250,000 yen here in Japan, which is just absolutely unheard of because this car was in gorgeous condition. The front bumper was kind of taped up, and there were scratches here and there, but it was in beautiful running condition. The, the the engine, everything, it was just, it was amazing that I was able to get a car that good for that price. And so, purchasing the car can be the the cheaper of the evils. But from there, there's things like the insurance that you need to get, which by the way, Japan really hasn't figured out how to gouge on car insurance yet. So car insurance was also insanely cheap. I think on a sports car, my insurance for the entire year was only somewhere around $350, maybe $400. If you're from North America, you're probably sitting there with your jaw wide open right now. You may be listening to this in the car and making like $150 monthly insurance payments on your car going what but you see in Tokyo at least you can't buy a car without proof of a registered parking space so you have to prove that you have a registered parking space now I when I lived on the west side of Tokyo I had a parking space that cost me about 100 to 150 a month. So, right there, boom, my cheap insurance doesn't mean much when I'm paying 100 to 150 a month for parking. Back when I lived in Asakusa, I completely gave up on the idea of owning a car simply because the parking at the building that I lived at was between $350 and $400 a month. That is thirty five thousand yen to forty thousand yen per month just for parking, and there was no way that it would be worth it. Now Japan does have some great car share programs, which I'll talk about in a second. But when owning a car, there are also other things that you have to keep in mind, like your shut-in, which is like I think a biannual inspection. And there's quite a price tag attached to that as well. And there's all these little costs. I often say that buying a car in Japan is cheap. Keeping the car is expensive. It definitely, definitely is. And so there are a lot of these car share programs like timeshare for a car. They've got like times plus they've got, I think one's called care co or something like that. Now, I haven't registered for one of these personally simply because living right in Tokyo, the transportation system is generally sufficient. And whenever I do need a car, I typically just rent one you know i've rented from nippon rent a car i've rented from toyota i personally you know i i don't have a specific preference there are discount car brands like nico nico rent a car or i believe there's one that's even called like 100 rent a car or something it's not actually 100 yen i think you can rent it like 100 yen for 15 minutes or 30 minutes or something but there are a lot of great options for rental car services in Japan. In fact, I was just reading an article yesterday that I found incredibly interesting that talked about this Nico Nico Renta car having a K-sized car, which is like a tiny car with a yellow license plate that can only fit as many as four people legally, that actually the insides all fold down and they put curtains up inside so that you can use it kind of like a little mini camper for when you're traveling. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about that would have been really, really useful. You see, Victor and I were going around for four days uh, to all these different locations. And one of the more recent questions that I got over on the YouTube channel was like, well, we don't really, you know, see you guys sleeping. Where were you guys sleeping? And for the most part, we were stopping at Hotels, with the exception of the odd spot where we wanted to be there first thing in the morning, so we would rest up somewhere during the day and then we would hang out in the area until fairly late at night, like midnight one or two, catch a couple hours in the car until like 4 a.m. or something, and then go out and enjoy the area. But if you are thinking about sleeping in a vehicle in Japan, More often than not, it may not be as simple as just pulling over onto the side of the road and catching a few Zs unless you plan on waking up before the rest of the world. Your safest bet is going to be a rest stop on a highway. And keeping in mind that Japanese highways do cost. So this is one of the things that really, really gets me because Japanese highways More often than not, there'll be one to two lane highways. They are rather narrow. You can expect to drive through a lot of tunnels and you can expect to pay an absolute premium. If I want to take a three hour drive north to Tochigi or something like that, I'm probably looking one way anywhere from seven to 8,000 yen, about 70 to 80 dollars one way so if you're going with a group it's really not that bad but i come from a country where except for the odd premium toll road all the highways are for the most part, free. So coming to a country where I want to do as much traveling as Japan and to have highways cost, a little bit of a fun fact. The reason that Japanese highways actually cost and have a price attached to them is because the Japanese government said, well, in order to build up the country's highways, what we're going to do is we're going to introduce a fee system. And this will help us to kind of build up the highway, get the infrastructure going. And then once it is built, what we're going to do is remove the fees and then boom, you will have highways. I don't even off the top of my head know or remember how many years ago that was, but Here we are in 2019, and what they keep doing is saying, oh, well, we need to add highway here, or we're going to repair this. And, you know, highways always require repair, but they keep adding new sections, and that enables them to say, well, we need to keep the toll system up for the highway. Just like we said, once it's built, we'll take it down, but nobody really knows when that will be. Up until a couple years ago, they had a system where on Sundays you could take the highways for free. You could literally drive anywhere in the entire country and it would be free on Sundays. But they did remove that system, I'm guessing, in large part simply due to the fact that Sundays become complete completely undriveable the the entire country became like a one-way parking lot you just could not get from point a to point b that three-hour drive that i described to you before that would be like a 7 a.m to like maybe 4 or 5 p.m drive if you were lucky so outside of that on the highways rest stops depending on the area you're in may be plentiful maybe few and far between that navigation system that we talked about earlier, that will have like general information as when your next rest stop is coming up. And there are signs on the highway as well. But the rest stops, more often than not, will have obviously washrooms. Some will have restaurants. Some will be fairly large. They'll be basically like a shopping center on the side of the highway, massive gorgeous, beautifully designed buildings, and others will be a shed with a washroom and a vending machine. The gap between them is one of my favorite things. A small part of me actually just wanted at one point just to do a tour of different rest stops along the Japanese highway. But I digress. Coming back to one of the main points being, I don't entirely recommend just pulling over and resting on the side of like a normal Japanese street. I haven't done it, so I can't tell you, but I would assume that that's the kind of thing that may get you kind of checked out by the police. And they're going to, you know, you never know what's going to happen either. You don't know how that road is used. It might be an early morning truck route. They're you know, just play it safe. Just be safe, I guess, is what I want to say. I've really sidebarred a lot here to just say, be safe and be smart. And a little bit of a side topic for anybody who is interested in motorcycles. I personally drive a little, uh, it's called a Zoomer here in Japan. In North America, it's known as a ruckus. I originally got it just because... I like being able to build and customize stuff. And this is a bike that's known for being able to build and customize on it. I stretched it out a bit. I lowered it. I changed up the handlebars. I just, you know, I just, it was a project bike for me more than anything. But after a while, my project bike actually became my transportation around Tokyo. This particular bike is fantastic. 50 cc's, it's actually 49, which throws it into the Genski category. It is by no means a speed hound, it is the exact opposite of what my car was. It is a slow, relaxing, just enjoyable ride to zip around Tokyo on. And zip may not even be the appropriate word there. But let's say roll, let's say roll around Tokyo on. And with a 50 cc or under Genski, you can drive it with a car license now under the gensky set of laws legally you cannot go over 30 kilometers an hour on a Genski motor vehicle and you have to do something called a nidankai usetsu which is like this really complicated turn on three lane roads but Outside of that, if you wanted to ride a bigger or heavier, more powerful motorcycle, obviously you are going to need a motorcycle license and all of that kind of falls under, again, the getting your license in Japan. It's not that big of a difference between the, the car license and the motorcycle license. So just a little bit there. I believe for the motorcycle, there is a test only option, but I also have heard that it is incredibly strict and they do go out of their way to fail people the first couple times. Again, I haven't done it. All of this is hearsay, it's all stories I've heard from people around me who have their motorcycle licenses, but you know, all of that aside, all of this has been born from this trip that Victor and I were doing. Now, we have since obviously returned from this trip, but if I had to talk about the best parts of driving in Japan, you see, I personally really enjoy the winding mountain roads this isn't something that is unique to japan it's something that's unique for me because i come from the east coast of canada where there are no mountains and there are definitely no winding mountain roads so to have the opportunity to drive through these roads and just experience japan in this way is just spectacular but every now and then wild boar or a monkey will jump in front of the car. And I guess it's a little safer than having a deer or in some cases in Canada, a moose jump in front of your car. Yes, that does happen. Not so much in the East Coast as in the West, but the real, real reward to these roads is when you get higher up on the mountains and you get this clearing in the forest that just opens up this gorgeous valley of rolling mountains through the Japanese countryside, those moments, or when you get high enough up on a mountain that you can see the shape and outline of the surrounding cities on either side. These are the moments that I love the most. This, as well as something simple like driving through the rice fields I couldn't remember the word for rice fields there for a second I was like panicking driving through the rice fields of Japan can just be one of the nicest experiences more often than not because Japan is over 70% mountain you will be surrounded by a lot of mountains unless you go up to an area like Hokkaido. Hokkaido has a lot more flatland and the mountains that are there tend to stand out a little more kind of off in the distance but generally driving in Japan has always been a both visually and emotionally rewarding experience. I have very few to almost no bad memories, even the time. Now, if you've been following the content for a while, you will know that my time with my S14 Sylvia ended terribly. In the case that you are not privy to that story, super long story short, I was actually taking a slow drive up to the area of Nico to see the changing of the leaves during fall. and had a full car of people. So we were driving uh, slow. There's, If you go to the very left lane, it's kind of the the slow lane. And I was like, this car cannot handle this many people. We're going to take it nice and easy. I believe we've been going a little bit under the speed limit. And that's pretty much where everything went wrong. Everyone was okay, but even the police officers who dealt with the accident were super, super kind. It really helped that nobody was at fault. So there was no finger pointing or blame, but they were like, You are incredibly lucky to be walking out of this. You know, go spend some time with loved ones, feel grateful, you know, let the insurance company do what they do. And so, in the end, that there was a lot of stress and difficulty after that. Obviously, um, it's never going to be like, oh, I had an accident. Cool, I'm gonna go a McDonald's and some ice cream. And no, it, it's it's not like that at all. There was there was a good year of stress after that, but the incident itself and the people around it and how it was handled was a lot less worse than I think it could have been. Again, though, all of this is purely subjective. It's off of my experiences and my opinions. And should you ever have the opportunity, I definitely encourage you to come and have experiences of your own. In fact, the little bit of a sneak peek for anybody who is a viewer of the YouTube channel. The next episode that we are doing is actually just a pure road trip episode, talking about what it's like to do a road trip in Japan, what it's like to drive in Japan, what it's like to get a car, just showing these roads that we're driving, meeting people along the way. So I hope that you guys have enjoyed this episode right here on the podcast. If you did, it would mean the world to me. If you take 10 seconds, 15 seconds at the end of this and jump onto iTunes and leave a little bit of a review. I've actually fallen behind on reading them. So you can sneak one in there before I have a chance to read it. I look forward to seeing what you have to write. And each and every one of those does mean the world to me. They really do help. And I enjoy them. So, Thank you guys so much for joining me on this episode today. I will try to make it not so long until we do another episode. Fingers crossed. I hope you have a beautiful day no matter what you are doing. And you guys know I will talk to you again real soon.